0: Our scripture reading for today is from 1 John 1, 3 through 7. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So it was a couple of years ago when I found an article um, in Christianity Today, of all places, on brain studies and some of the new science that's coming out about brain studies. And The article was particularly talking about uh, a concept known as, as cognitive extension, which is this idea that apparently our brain has uh, a way of taking the tools that we use and making it seem as, as if it's an extension of our own bodies. For real, like a, like a carpenter who might pick up a hammer and use that hammer to accomplish whatever, the brain will actually begin to map that hammer as if it's part of his hand so that he can accomplish whatever tools he's wanting to get done even better. Same thing happens to people with um, uh, amputees, with prosthetics they have on. Eventually, the brain starts to incorporate them as if they are a part. Well, the author went on to inc- conclude this. He says, this ultimately means that we do not think and learn solely with our brains or with solely our bodies. We literally think in better and more powerful ways when we are connected to elements outside of our bodies. We end up supersizing our own human capacities. Now, look, that was the idea that fascinated me about this article because I think that science is discovering that human beings do not function anywhere near their capacity when they're doing so purely in reference to their internal selves. But only as I recognize that there's another self out there, and then our very brains will incorporate that person's usefulness in our own lives. I find this to be absolutely profound for a lot of reasons, because we live in a time, as I've said before, where the internal self is really this generation's only guide in life. We live in a time where we're told to follow our hearts. Where we're told to sort of be, our, be whatever you want to be. You do you. And in Christianity, we oftentimes take that very same thing on. When you survey religious people for why they go to church, they say things like, well, I want to have an experience with God. Or they say something like, I want, I want to be spiritually fed. Or I want my children to have a, a place where they can learn spiritual things or something. And even some respondents will say, I'm looking for fellowship and for friendship. (laughs) But what's interesting is those goals are filtered through this world that basically still centers them all on what I need, on what I desire, and what I long for. In other words, I want those relationships, but only because they benefit me. And this is why this article was so challenging for me, because on the one hand, I I, want to try to convince you this morning that one of the reasons why we have this instinct for relationship, even on our brains, is because God created us to be that way. But too often, our own sin and our own failures get in the way of me being able to connect with people because I think the world revolves around me. Everything in our culture is telling us that it revolves around us. So, you, we've dropped you in the middle of a study this summer through uh, uh, these uh, elements that constitute a healthy spiritual life. And we're talking about it in terms of spiritual formation. How is it that God is going to form us into what he needs us to be? And today we're going to find that for the Apostle John, he does so by pointing us to the power of connection. And he's going to use a word that I think if you've been in any kind of religious circles, you've probably heard before. The Greek word behind the word you have translated fellowship there in verses 3, 6, and 7 is the Greek word koinonia. And koinonia is what I really want to talk about this morning because he comes along and says that koinonia can only be achieved. this, This deep fellowship that exists can only be achieved under the circumstances that he lays out. In other words, this kind of deep fellowship is far more than whatever we experience at, at, at our hunting camp or far deeper than what we might get in, in, a, in a grove tent group or maybe a uh, you know, sorority sister reunion. This is a spiritually developed, spiritually understood connection that I want to try to unpack this morning under three headings. First of all, I want to look at the theology of connection. I want to look secondly at the nature of connection. And then finally, I want to consider our experience of connection. Okay? So theology, nature, and experience. Let's dive into the theology for a second because this one's really fascinating. Look at verse 3 there. What John says here is what I would like to call the calculus of the gospel. Follow up. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have koinonia with us. And indeed, our koinonia is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Okay, did you see the connection? What he says is, John says, I want for you to have what all of God's people have. But in order to know what that deep connection is, you have to know this God first. That's the calculus of the gospel. That is, coming and knowing God, being deeply connected to God, will invariably create an experience of powerful connection with each other. That's the theology. The question, though, is why? And I think you have to go back to the very doctrine of the Trinity before you get this. I mean, for a couple thousand years, Christians have pounded out a very careful understanding of what we mean when we say God is three persons in one essence. We know that the, the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son is, so, is, is, is one of such powerful mutuality, of, of, of deep, coextensive unity. That the relationship between them, that love that exists between them, is so tangible that according to Jonathan Edwards, it itself becomes its own person as the Holy Spirit. Our own confession says that the Father exists as the eternally begotten one, the one who eternally begets the Son. The Son exists as the eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from that powerful union as a unique person in the Trinity. But all three of those persons exist together in a great connection, a great fellowship, a great koinonia. The Trinity has that. And so here's the question. If that kind of God is going to make a creature in his image, does it not stand to reason that we would have the same instinct, the same longing, the same need for that same deep connection? One theologian put it this way, he says, John is saying that there is a kind of life, a quality of life, which actually is God's very own life, and which God himself is now sharing with the people who have heard and seen the life come to life that we call Jesus. Indeed, John sees God's own life as already a shared fellowship, the fellowship between the Father and the Son. Did you catch that? John is saying, I see all of my relationships here as if we are participating in that relationship. <laughs> Our friendship with each other is because of the friendship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now that's profound. So what he's saying is, is the message of koinonia is so profound because it's what you've been looking for. Which is why in verse 4 he says, we have a completed joy because of it. Hold that thought, we're coming back to it. But I find it really interesting that when the early church first got together, this is one of the first things they reported having. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, and we're actually going to do a deep dive on this here in just a few, uh, perhaps a month or two, uh, in our study through Acts this fall. But by the time you get to verse 42, we find that while they were together, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Now that's a little bit of a different way of talking about it, because you and I say, well, we're going to go have good fellowship. We don't say, we're going to go have good the fellowship. But that definite article is in the Greek. Why did he put it there? I think the reason was is because there was something so so amazingly earth-shattering profound that was existing between them that they had discovered, because of the descent of the Holy Spirit upon them, that it kind of became a thing in itself you know, the fellowship. It was a thing that was so real to them because it was deep and it was powerful. Kent Hughes puts it this way. He says, the word fellowship means a whole lot more than just association, even more than just mere friendship. It means more than having a good conversation over a cup of coffee. Koinonia is a word that means the deep sharing of things in common via association and participation. So to have fellowship with one another is not just a matter of being in the same room at a church, but it means having a relationship with each based on our relationship to Christ that causes us to participate together around a common bond. Did you catch that? Koinonia is this deep sharing of things in common. That's the profoundness that he's wanting to do. I think it's exactly what motivated C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful little book called The Four Loves. You ever read this? He breaks down these four different kinds of loves, and at one point he draws a contrast between what he calls romantic love. Romantic love is when you have two people who are looking at each other, staring very intently at each other. And there's a, there's a love that we can say exists there. But he says friendship love is two people looking at something together. They're looking at a common horizon, and as they grow towards that common horizon, what happens? They grow together. I heard one preacher put it this way. He said, it's almost like that movie genre of the buddy movie. There's too many examples to even mention because you've seen this before. The movie starts with two people who you meet, and you find out that they despise each other. They hate each other. And you get all this comedy of them trying to find ways to hate each other. But circumstances end up throwing them into like a a mutual adventure or something, right? And they have to go through it. And by the end of the movie, they're hugging. It's called a buddy movie. But the principle is actually biblical because what it says is, is once we find something in common, then we can grow together. Now, here's the thing. Small little side note. There are superficial things that will create a sensation of connection, We could share the same love of music or the same love of art or maybe uh, uh, careers or something like that. But what John is saying is Christians have something that is completely unique. Again, we're going to come back to this in just a second. Because those other little horizons, those little mini horizons we sort of make life to be great, those things are going to change again and again. But only in Christ do we have something that is profound and deep and long-lasting. Uh, Side note, side application. This is one of the reasons why the Bible says that a Christian should not marry someone who is not a Christian. And it's not because the Bible doesn't like non-Christians. Actually, far from it. What it means is, is that ultimately, when two people do not share Christ, they really can't be friends. They can't ultimately be friends because they're only going to build their horizons off of things that change, and therefore it's not built to last. So the theology of connection, the theology of koinonia is rooted in the Trinity and shows itself in every longing that we have and brings me to the second point, and that is the nature of connection, which is what does it mean when I'm living in that reality? Like how will I know when I'm actually connecting with people? Well, I do think at this point it helps us to turn to some modern people who have done some really, really good thinking about this, and I cannot think of any other better uh, then researcher uh, Brene Brown. Brene Brown and I would not agree on everything when it comes to theology, but when it comes to her understanding of connection, it is, in my opinion, quite profound. Because what she says is, is first of all, connection happens because I was able to see the world through someone else's eyes. That's the idea. Can I communicate to someone in such a way that they really do sense that I get them. I heard them and I got them. And what Brene Brown does is she goes, what that requires of us is for those who long for this connection is we have to learn a set of skills. And a main set of those skills begins with the art of listening. And it's not just listening to be kind of like, yeah, 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 blah, 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 when are you finished? (laughs) But it's listening without interrupting. It's listening without you know, having that kind of anxiousness about, when is it time for me to say what I think? You ever had that experience? There's a comedian, Brian Regan, who talks about the me monster that always wants to come up. And you're in a conversation, and you're listening to him, and you're like, yeah, yeah, you, 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 me, me. And you want to jump in with your opinion as quickly as you possibly can? She says we've got to unlearn these things. We've got to learn to stop giving lectures and learn to give understanding and empathy But here's what happens. When you're able to communicate in that way, that person walks away and is like, man, that person understands me. They are connected. Okay? So that's the first thing. Connection is through seeing people. The nature of connection is seeing the world through their eyes. But secondly, the second point about connection comes in what John goes to next in the verses. And I find this interesting. John's talking about fellowship and the Trinity and koinonia, blah, blah, blah. But then all of a sudden he starts to talk about people Who think that they don't sin? Look at verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in, uh, in us. Now, why did he suddenly start talking about that? I think there's a reason. Because connection typically does not happen. We are unable to see the world through someone else's eyes. If they do not believe, if they are not convinced that we're being vulnerable with them. Until they see our flaws until they see our fears, until they're aware of our insecurities. That's the only way. I guarantee this has happened to you already. There are people in your life, people whom you consider friends, and you would have to admit that when you first met them, you were maybe a little bit intimidated by them. But somewhere along the way, either they messed something up in your viewing or they told you how they messed something up in your hearing, and you thought to yourself, now that's somebody I can hang out with. They became accessible. I do think it's our natural default mode when we meet new people to be a bit intimidated by them or to feel like we need to control them in order to put them in a place where it makes me comfortable. We lean towards that. And so here's what John is saying. We're not going to start this if you're not willing to admit that you're a sinner. There will be no koinonia without you owning what it is that keeps you from true health and true relationship with God. You know, there's a story that Brene Brown tells in her little book called uh, Daring Greatly that is almost too painful to tell, so just bear with me. Um, She talks about going on a speaking tour one particular summer in a a major American city, uh, only to arrive home uh, and realize that there was someone in attendance uh, that she was wanting to impress. But this was a person who happened to have very strong opinions and decided to take her to task for just about everything that she said. He didn't like her presentation, he didn't like her tone, he thought her content was elementary, and maybe you should not quit your day job, right? So she was crushed under the weight of this email. But she thought to herself, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm going to forward this email to one of my friends, and I'm gonna take this guy to task. So she types this email about what, how crazy this guy is, and where do you see this lunatic who sent this email to me? And I mean, does the guy even have a brain at all? And then she very gleefully presses send on the email. Only to realize just a few moments later that instead of pressing the forward button at the beginning of the email, she had pressed the reply button on the email. And aren't you uncomfortable right now? When I read it, it made me uncomfortable. And it sent it right to the guy. She was completely, totally busted. But here's the crazy thing when you hear a story like that, isn't there a little something on the inside of you that says, I could be friends with Brene Brown? <laughs> Because anybody who's got the humility to tell a story like that is somebody I can relate to. In other words, what happens is, is when someone has a willingness to be vulnerable and not put that chip on their shoulder, we connect with them. Here's what she says. She says, people who tell me, I don't care what people think. I don't worry about the critics in that arena of my life. These people send up a major red flag for me. Because we are hardwired for connection. When we stop caring what people think, we lose our capacity for that connection. Now, when we become defined by what people think, we lose our capacity to be vulnerable. But not, listen to this, I find this so profound, not caring what people think is its own kind of hustle. You either walk inside your own story and own it, or you spend your life walking outside of your story and you hustle for your own worthiness. Wow. But the point is, as long as you're giving off the impression that everything's great with me, you are hustling for your worth. And as long as you're hustling, you'll always have a deep temptation to think that I'm being fake and that I'm actually a sham. But when all of a sudden there is a spirit filled ability to own those things in the hearing of another person, and they can grant a measure of acceptance even on the basis of that embarrassment, I walk away and, I'm like, oh, I found a friend. You know, actually, my last thing before we go to the next point here. I, I realize that there's an example of this from the New Testament itself. If you read through the Gospels, especially like without any kind of filters on it, you're going to realize that the biggest goofs in the New Testament are the disciples. You know this? They don't get anything right. Everything Jesus says, they contradict. They go this way, supposed to go that way. Peter himself gets called Satan at one point by Jesus. But do you want to know why we have the story about Jesus calling Peter Satan? It's because Peter told us. Peter told the story to Mark. Mark put it in Mark. Then all of a sudden Luke and Matthew picked up on the same story. They're the ones who disseminated these embarrassing stories about themselves. Why? You want to know why? Because they had koinonia. They had fellowship. They were known even for their embarrassing things. So here's my question. Is there anything in your life like that? Is there anything in your life that looks like that? in in terms of those kind of relationships. Well, let me go to the last point then, which is the experience of connection. What does this look like when we're in the midst of this? Well, I think I can think of three things. The first one is this. True friendship is only going to happen if vulnerability is there. But vulnerability only happens when we are okay marching into the heartbreak. These are difficult things. These are not easy tasks. Listen to what Brene Brown says. She says, We must run headlong into heartbreak because there are things that are far worse than having our hearts broken. Yeesh. Listen to this. Such as the harm that we inflict on our own loved ones when we attempt to disown pain and then invariably transmit it onto them. Catch that? We can attempt to disown pain, act like it's not there, but you know what? Pain's going to come out somewhere. And invariably, where it comes out is it comes out in the lives of the people we love the most. She says, and the legacy of trauma suddenly ripples into our own children's hearts and even generations to come, veiling us in a seemingly impermeable barrier to vulnerability and all of the fruits that grow with it. Hey, look, whatever we do in the world of spiritual formation, I'm telling you, the connection and koinonia is where the roots are. And so the question is, is do, am I building this? Do I have anyone like this? Not every day, not every week, but can I look back in the last six months and say, yes, there are people who know me to that level. They know the hurtful parts inside me. Secondly, though, and this one's a little more of a perspective uh, 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 thing when it comes to understanding connection, but we have to understand that connection ends up neutralizing every other relationship we have that's not united by Christ. What do I mean by that? The only real bonds that we have with people are those that we have that connection with in Christ because whenever we make relationships and connections based on these superficial things and those relationships begin to vie for our our identity as they will always do, they end up failing. And you want to know why? Because other people are impermanent, always. Here's a couple in love with each other, right? Right? And they look at each other's eyes and they say, I will love you for eternity. But here's the thing. One of those people are going to die. And barring some unique circumstance where they die at the exact same time, one is going to be left without the other. But here's the thing. Friendships were made to feel like eternity. Our spouses are like this. At our best moments, we look at our spouse and we can't even imagine life without them. But it's impermanent because of death. And so what John has discovered, and part of the euphoria of koinonia, of is this knowledge that if our unity is not based on music or songs or great food or whatever even experiences we've had, but on Christ himself, it means it lasts forever. <laughs> We're not just friends temporarily. This is forever. We will never stop being friends. It reminds me a lot of when Jesus gets confronted by somebody about his family waiting outside in Matthew 12, 46. Someone's like, oh, your family's outside, Jesus. And remember what he says? He says, then he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, it looks like Jesus is kind of being mean to his family, but he's not. He's being honest because families die. <laughs> Children move out of the house one day. Spouses fail and they make mistakes. But the point is that there is no safe harbor for love if it's not love that is built around the eternal love of Jesus for his people. that's unique. It's different. It roots those things differently. Thirdly and finally, this is what life is about. (laughs) Connection is what makes the world go round. It's what we long for. It is the best. It is the fullness of joy that John is talking about in verse 4. And all of our most profound struggles, all of the things that we think are going to undo us, typically if you follow that little string out, (laughs) they end up becoming a problem with connection with other people. I was able, while I was doing some some work on this a couple months ago, to come across a researcher in Australia by the name of Justin Coulson. And apparently he did a landmark study, interviewed thousands of teenage women, and wrote a book called Misconnection. M-I-S-S, Connection. But it was the subtitle that grabbed me. The subtitle is, Why Your Teenage Daughter Hates You, Expects the World, and Really Needs to Talk. So I dove into this book. I thought it was kind of fun. And in the introduction, Colson says this. He says, you know, I anticipated that this book was going to be about the moral scourges of our time. And by moral scourges, I mean anything that the media gets crazy about in relationship to our young people. Screens, bullying, eating disorders, self-harm, sex, and so on. But what my findings suggest is that most parents and teenagers are worried about more mundane everyday challenges. Things like motivation at school for learning, uh, uh, well-being matters such as body image and identity crises, or drama with their friends. But he said most of all, it was connection When I asked girls, if there was one thing about your life that you could change, what would it be? The overwhelming response was statements such as, my relationship with my parents. I would have more of an emotional connection with my family. I want a close family and support from them. He says, this deep desire for connection carried across strongly to friendship groups. But the primary emphasis was repeatedly on family and parents. And listen to how he ended it. He said, I could almost feel them pleading. Pleading for connection. And here's my premise: ain't just teenage girls in Australia. <laughs> it's boys too. And it's grown-ups in America, just like us. Pleading for it. Look, we're trying to summarize what spiritual formation looks like with this acrostic. A-C-T-S. And last week we said that A means attend, right? That we've got to be a part of a tribe before we start to take on their attributes. The C, we're going to say, is connection. You want to know why? Because you can attend without connecting. That's possible. That's the reason why the leadership landed on the word connect, because we believe that it is based on a similar pleading of every single heart here. To be known and yet still be okay. That's the rub, isn't it? I fear being known because then they'll see. But if I withdraw into loneliness, then I'm never known. That is the human dilemma. And this place right here, you ready? This place right here is the place, it's the outpost where God wants to change the tide of that. Where I can say, you know what? Those people there, they know me. Now look, it would be very easy at this point, and I'm just shameless enough to do it, that it's a little bit of 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 a commercial for our Connect groups, which are starting in August. If you don't know who your connect group leader is or you're not involved in one, drop us an email. We would love to get you involved with that. But that's why we called them connect groups. kind of rebranded the fellowship group, shepherding group idea so that we know what those are for. We're trying to create an environment where I might make a friend, where I might actually take some initiative to step out and not be as alone as I often am. In the daily getting up and going to work and coming home and drudging through tasks, And going to bed exhausted every day. To know and be known. That's where the richness is. So are you connecting? (laughs) Do you know anything about this koinonia that John's talking about? What steps am I willing to take as we move out into into this place? So that I might look back on a year and say that God was moving among us. He built this in me. The bottom dropped out of my own life probably about 15, 16 years ago when I was in a prayer group with some friends. And a friend of mine talked about a little small group that he had made with some guys in town. And he was a minister, interestingly enough. He was like, it was the first small group I've ever went to that nobody asked me to prepare. (laughs) And he said, you know what, they have come to mean something so much to me. And I'm telling you, the bottom dropped out of my heart. And I started saying, God, I don't have that. I'm in need of that. And over time, through a lot of fumblings in here, I've experienced more or less of it. But it begins by owning the fact that I'm too alone. And I need to be connected. I need to be meaningfully joined in this particular way. What a great thing to start this summer. Because the fall's coming. Who knows what God might do? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you begin to do that? Because we need your Spirit to do it. Only your Holy Spirit can work through all of the incrustations around our hearts Father, that oftentimes just make us unable to see things that are right in front of us. So we need you. We need you to come alongside us. Help us, Father, look around at other people and long for it first. And would you put those providential meetings, maybe a sign-up for a small group, maybe an attendance at a connect group, Father, some way that we might reach out and see you deal with us and create in us outposts of great, deep, profound fellowship. Would you do that? Father, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.